is Andy Wakefield and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Hi, I'm Lori Gregory and welcome back to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. Andy, great to be back with you. Great to be back, Laurie. Good to still be here. I, we, you know, we've got our, our special guest again this week, but before we introduce him, can you give us a quick update on the film? Absolutely. Um, the film, the, the actual making of the film has been, like everything else in the world, somewhat delayed by COVID-19. But we've, we've been operating on a system called Frame, which is absolutely fabulous for us. We're independent filmmakers, particularly those working at a distance where one editor may be somewhere and the second editor may be somewhere else and the, the composers may be in Los Angeles. It, it's an extremely good system. So I'm singing the praises of Frame. That's pretty great. Uh, so it kind of puts everybody in one room, even though everyone's spread out around the country. Yeah, it's, it's 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 still not ideal. I mean, I'd, I'd like to be very much hands-on, but that this is this is as good as it gets in the circumstances. So, all credit to Frame. This may well be the first film ever finished on Frame. This will be interesting. Well, it's so, great that the systems are already set up for remote functioning, given the social distancing order that we're all sort of under, um, depending on what state you live in, various degrees. We're fortunate to have our special guest back. I'd love for you to welcome him, Andy, and we can talk to him about what's going on in D.C. Absolutely. Great friend Jim Moody back on, a Washington lawyer, public interest lawyer, a man who knows more about everything else in the world than just about anyone I've ever met, including this issue. It is extraordinary how timely this film is, how it is really a study in the history of these kinds of national and international scares that are thrown up by the media, by politicians, by the threat of infectious disease, the reaction to it, and the inevitable march towards mandatory vaccination and liability protection for the industry. And the current circumstances are really no different. It is an aggressive drumbeat, and I'm really looking forward to bringing Jim into this conversation. I would like to do a quick shout-out, since I am helping you produce this film, that we are still trying to close out our final dollars for post-production, and we have been able to use things like Frame to make our task very efficient and cost-effective, but there is the real-life need for funding, and we are at our last home stretch. So for those who are interested, they can make a donation, and we'd be so grateful. They can go to paypal.me slash crystalclearfilmfndn. That's F like Frank, N like Nancy, D like dog, N like Nancy. So that's an abbreviation for foundation. And it's crystal clear with C's, crystal clear film foundation. That will give you a, it's a 501c3, so that will give you a tax deduction if you're so interested. And we do need to complete our last $99,000 to finish this film. And we will get there because the support is so great. We've done very little public asks to support this film. All of it has been raised in private donations at this point. But we're at the point now where fundraising in this Wuhan virus, Jim, as you've taught me to say, Wuhan, is, is challenging. And um, our community is going to come together and we're going to get it done. So I will give that link out again at the end of our podcast for those of you who want to get a piece of paper and a pen and 
jot it down. But Jim, welcome to this conversation. Andy and I have been looking forward to talking to you well, about thank, mandates. Thank, thank you guys. And, and I, I follow along in the footsteps of giants. So uh, here to help. Happy to, have, happy to be here. Well, that's very kind. And Andy, you've been so steeped in this narrative as part of putting together this film. And I know having seen some of the rough cut that we've got really a deep history in this country for five plus decades. Uh, Jim, I've talked to you offline about where you sort of think this is going, but Andy, I wonder if you would just give us a little recap of kind of where it all started and what the, the milestones have been in this narrative. Well, the thing that interests me is the liability protection issue. And in a free market, it, it seems totally counterintuitive that we have a highly protected industry with a highly protected series of products which have made them immensely wealthy and have made them immensely powerful as a consequence. It started really in terms of uh, liability protection with the swine flu threat in 1976, which turned out to be nothing. It cost the taxpayer, the government, a lot of money in terms of not only the production of the vaccine that was unnecessary, but the damage done by that vaccine, particularly in the form of deaths and Guillain-Barre syndrome, a paralytic disease. And so the industry realized at that time, as did the public health authorities, that fear was an extraordinarily powerful motivator, particularly to politicians. Politicians are not sophisticated in public health or in matters of science, and therefore they are exquisitely vulnerable to pressure put on them by public health officials and the pharmaceutical industry and threatened with, you know, having no vaccine at all and, the, and the, a repetition of the 1917 Spanish flu epidemic, which of course had nothing whatsoever to do with Spain. They conceded uh, and liability protection was provided to the industry and it really went from there. They tasted blood in the water and they uh, fought and fought and fought uh, for liability protection beyond that point, which they then gained to a greater extent in 1986 in the act. Um, Which gives vaccine makers complete immunity from any product liability in the free market. Common misconception, not complete liability at that time. Certainly a measure of liability protection, uh, but Congress clearly intended that children should have the option of taking their case to state or federal court if they were not satisfied with what happened in uh, the so-called vaccine court in the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, uh, particularly for a vaccine that was defectively designed, uh, particularly where it was knowingly defectively designed, where they could have done better. And they suggested that they, they could do no better when, in fact, the discovery documents reveal that that was a complete and utter lie. But nonetheless, they, they got protection to a degree which then became absolute in the Supreme Court under Brusevitz versus Wyatt. The story of this unfolding tragedy and its intended and unintended consequences and what we're witnessing now are some of those consequences and particularly the threat. The industry is making hay while the sun shines. And for the industry now, the pharmaceutical industry, the vaccine manufacturers, the sun is most most certainly shining at the moment. And there's an opportunity, they see an opportunity for leveraging, I'm sure, adult, uh, indeed, cradle-to-grave mandatory vaccination, or not just, let's say, a 
Wuhan virus uh, vaccine, but for all of their wares, all of their vaccines. And this is, we saw this with measles vaccines. There were measles outbreaks around the world. It was blamed on the anti-vaxxers. In fact, it was largely due to vaccine failure. But that was used, as for example, in France, that, that threat of measles was used to leverage 14 mandatory vaccinations, 13 have had, which had absolutely nothing to do with measles. But they well, that, that's, that's certainly, the, that, that's very much the concern for what we're seeing here. And Jim, you know that we've been watching for the adult mandates, uh, Healthy People 2020, pushing the agenda toward adult mandates. Now in California, I'm hearing that the California government is starting to beat the drums around keeping public schools closed until there is a corona vaccine and not letting children back to school until then, which clearly they'll be adding it to their schedule, given that SB 277, their mandatory vaccine law that was passed in 2015, Clause 11 of that bill stated that they could add any additional vaccine to the list of vaccines that they had in Clause 10. So they have carte blanche to add whatever vaccine they want to the California schedule. Where do you see this going? And do you think that what Andy is saying is that this fear mongering is leading us down that road? Well, we have a, uh, you know, our, our society is governed by utilitarian sort of principle of, of using the power of the law to stamp out harm. Uh, once uh, somebody who wants to make a product can articulate some harm, if you don't use the product, they can bring to bear all of the forces of law to make you use the product. First to burden, burden you and then to force you. Along comes a new threat which you know, we were trying to make decisions in an atmosphere of uncertainty. We literally shut the world down without really knowing much about the threat at all. Some models predicted you know, 1918 style or worse uh, death, and, and some models predicted very little difference besides the ordinary seasonal flu, which takes you know, somewhere between five or 10,000 and maybe 60,000 to flu and flu-like respiratory viruses every year, mostly the elderly. And so we've guided our response shutdown so far. Interestingly enough, Trump is wisely placing heavy reliance on the private sector to develop everything from test kits and uh, personal protective equipment to antivirals to vaccines. But yet a part of the private sector that's hidden away in the vaccine program is that the litigation part has been rendered by Congress completely ineffective. And for coronavirus, Wuhan virus vaccine, They've already invoked now a week ago the uh, declassifying at all of the tests and diagnostic tests and vaccines as a countermeasure, meaning it will have even more complete liability protection than the MMR and the other childhood and adult vaccines have. So there'll be no right of recovery other than to file, other than to file an administrative petition where you have to have clear and convincing evidence and no right of judicial review. So since they hide the data on vaccine safety anyway, and it will hide it more on, on countermeasures, there'll be no chance of recovery uh, on liability. But part of the private sector in America anyway, and robust free market, free market system is tort law, which basically says, if you break it, you fix it. So if you cause an injury, whether it's a uh, chili made with some E. coli at your local restaurant uh, or a defective vaccine that can be made safer, you know, it's our tradition in this country administered through state law that you, you, you have, you're facing tort liability, and that is a powerful incentive 
together with appropriate federal and state regulation to make products that are as safe as they reasonably can be. And that's what's been taken away from the vaccine part, and even more so from the coronas or from the Wuhan vaccine when it comes online. So from a legal standpoint, that certainly makes sense once you have an injury. I think for a lot of the folks in the health freedom movement, and especially the mothers that either are trying to protect their children who are healthy or have children that have already been injured or want to just simply understand what the risks are, you know, the question becomes really a more of why and how can this kind of fear mongering be led to generating a product that is being rushed to market, especially when you look at the morbidity data that's coming out of Europe. I know Dr. Burks on the COVID commission was talking about this. And, you know, she was saying that 99%, the data point that's most of interest is that 99% of the morbidity um, that is coming out of Europe are cases where it's elderly and there are at least three pre-existing conditions. So the data is not providing what one would consider to be a national outcry for a rush to market for a vaccine that would justify the risk, especially if you look at something like tuberculosis, which is an infectious disease. And we had 251,000 cases, and I believe those were deaths, but they were definitely cases. Um, I'll double check that data from TB from last year. Nobody talks about this. And instead, we're focusing on what's looking like very small numbers in terms of data points that make it challenging to justify the price that we're paying here. So what are either of your thoughts about that? Well, I, I just just on the one thing that did strike me, and you talked about comorbidities, um, particularly amongst, for example, the Italian elderly. Uh, one thing that emerged in the news, I think it was a Washington newspaper that I was reading, is, is that people should be forced in the face of of the Wuhan virus, they called it COVID-19 as the disease, that people should be uh, forced to have the influenza vaccine. Anti-vaxxers should be forced to have, you know, that struck me as being somewhat bizarre, not least of which is because NIH studies have confirmed that having the influenza vaccine renders you more susceptible to coronaviruses, apparently per se. And that's that about, I think, 20, 36% more susceptible to getting a coronavirus infection. And it then emerged that, and again, this is a, a, a something that needs to be followed up, followed up on, but it, apparently the Italian elderly were exposed to a super-boosted influenza vaccine. It seems to be somewhat exclusive to the Italians that um, just in advance of this COVID-19 disease, the Wuhan virus outbreak. Now, here is a, is it biologically plausible, therefore, in the face of that information, that the Italian elderly were at greater risk of a serious adverse outcome to the Wuhan virus because of this prior exposure to the flu vaccine and some kind of immunological vaccine enhancement of their disease? Now, it's a testable hypothesis, and it should have been tested. Someone in Italy should be testing the hypothesis that prior exposure to this flu vaccine increases or modifies the risk of an outcome 
to the Wuhan virus. So there may be explanations in addition to intrinsic comorbid conditions suffered by Italian elderly, such as heart disease, cancer, etc., that may have put them at a greater risk. It's an interesting possibility, but it most certainly, in light of this, should have been studied. Someone should be studying this, and I doubt very much whether that is the case. Jim, what are your thoughts about this and relative to where the science may be going or not going that could have implications toward mandates? And then I'd like to hear from both of you regarding uh, Event 201, which is an exercise that was sponsored by the Gates Foundation. You both probably know this. I'm just going to mention it for our, the sake of our listeners. In October of last year, Event 201 was sponsored by the Gates Foundation and Johns Hopkins University. And I was a bit disturbed to see that one of the giveaways that they had at this Event 201, which of course was to do an exercise in a world pandemic, a global pandemic, they gave away these little plushies, which are little stuffed animal type dolls of a coronavirus. And there's a tag on one of the plushies. We actually have a photo of it, which we can post on our social media, where it says Event 201, and it's sponsored by Johns Hopkins University. And I find it extremely alarming that this would have been taking place in October of course, it has all the conspiracy theorists rushing to question whether or not this is an orchestrated campaign. But I'd love to know what both of you, what both of your thoughts are on that as well. Well, clearly they didn't do a good job of preparing because the when the dust settles, uh, there'll be a lot of finger pointing at CDC for completely bungling the uh, tests. Uh, they were using their old flu flu platform for the original tests, distributed test kits evenly to everybody without focusing on the hot spots. The test kits were in many cases defective. They had the wrong reagents. And so uh, Trump relatively quickly called on Roche, I think it was, to develop the high throughput testing platform, which came online just in the last couple of weeks. So early testing, which is what they would help them plan their health response in South Korea, was missing here mm -hmm. as a component, particularly in the hotspots. That helped, that, that led in part to the failure of early containment which did work as a public health measure in SARS and did not work here. Whatever that event 201 did, it clearly flopped. I mean, you can, tabletop exercises, you know, whether you're planning for nuclear war or, or repelling a, a terrorist biological threat or a natural one, is an entirely appropriate thing to do. There's no conspiracy there. We should wargame these, tabletop exercise these, uh, and plan them. And, and But clearly the planning wasn't, was inadequate here and that we were not prepared, particularly on the testing side. And probably as a bottleneck on the respirator and, and ventilator side, if we only had about right. 800,000 of them and uh, PPP, we used up PPE, all the PPP yes. during yes. the Obama administration to deal with the Ebola crisis and did not replace it in the stockpile. Certainly not Trump's fault. You know, Congress could have appropriated the money to replenish those stockpiles, just like we have a petroleum reserve. And we should clearly have a uh, sufficient stockpile to handle a respiratory pandemic virus because there will certainly be another one. So how would these folks know about corona back in September, October? Is this a microbe, a virus that's been around and bandied oh, sure, about but, in science but, but circles? Corona, I mean, oh, I thought it right, just sort of was sprung on us in January. No, no. This is the, you know, the 19th in the, in the listing. I mean, SARS was a coronavirus. Uh, MERS was a coronavirus. Many things that we call the common cold are coronaviruses. They're common. Mm -hmm. uh, this was, a, but like I said, that SARS was a sufficient warning to war game 
these kinds of things. So the fact that they did event 201 with a coronavirus is of no consequence. Okay. Well, that's a little bit reassuring. Could have been Ebola. My point is there's no conspiracy here. There's a failure of a systemic failure to prepare for these kinds of problems. And that, and that really belongs primarily on the heads of CDC. So can we can we point the finger at the Obama administration as being partially responsible for not replenishing some of these needed supplies? Yes, and for being slow to update the test kit procedure because whenever a new virus comes along, you're going to need to develop a probe and a primer to test for the active virus. You can't do that until you have the sequence. So there's no way to actually have a stockpile of these things, but you can have a manufacturing plant set up and the appropriate people trained to mass produce these things when they do find a new sequence. And this, in the sequence, I believe, was identified January 8th and published. Mm-hmm. So it's, we were It was rapid six, time. That's a record, is it not? Because we have advances in microbial technology that have enabled us to sequence more quickly. Is that accurate? Andy, is that true? That's absolutely true. And that's really revolutionized the approach to viral detection sequencing strain determination well does that does that mean that our, does that mean that will it will lead to a safer vaccine it's a very good question and there this the, the answer comes in at least several parts that i can think of off the top of my head and one is that this approach to vaccines novel approach to vaccine making rna based vaccines that lead the body to theoretically synthesize proteins of the agent, therefore the immune system responds to them, precludes the use of an aluminum adjuvant, for example, or thimerosal, and the way in which they're produced presumably minimizes the risk of adventitious infectious agents that used to get in through, say, monkey kidney cells or chick embryo fibroblasts. And so it, in theory, might reduce the toxicity, the risk uh, of an adverse reaction from those things. It, however, may produce all kinds of problems in its own right. And so we should be rightly cautious. And so the idea that you can do a phase one safety study of this vaccine in 45 individuals is so far from being valid. If the reaction, the adverse reaction occurs in one in 46 people and it's that one that you miss, then uh, that doesn't make it a rare complication. That makes it an extremely common complication that wasn't picked up in the phase one study. So that's a, a, a big concern. The other thing I just wanted to mention, and I just, I'll just i throw this in there, this is a document that I found in in my social media, but it is interesting. It's relevant to us here in Florida. In the Circuit Court of Florida, 7th Judicial Circuit, in and for Flagler, Putnam, St. John's, and Volusia counties, um, Justice Raul Zambrano, who's Chief Judge of the 7th Judicial Circuit of Florida, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Florida Constitution, hereby orders that from March the 18th, 2020, until April the 6th, court proceedings will be limited to those deemed mission critical. It's really interesting, mission critical. And on that list of mission critical court proceedings include the seizure of bodily fluids and mandatory vaccination proceedings. Wow. And I find that really rather disturbing. We don't have mandatory vaccination here in Florida. There are 
um, religious, philosophical, and medical exemptions. And so to find those on a list of mission-critical legal proceedings, mandatory vaccinations, I was uh, somewhat ominous. And, and that's, really that's, a, that's a bit unsettling. So I just want to uh, clarify my tuberculosis data. 1.5 million people died from TB in 2018. Uh, that includes 251,000 people with HIV. Worldwide, tuberculosis is one of the top 10 causes of death and the leading cause from a single infectious agent above HIV and AIDS. In 2018, an estimated 10 million people fell ill with TB worldwide, and this is based on data from the World Health Organization. So juxtaposing that with the numbers that we're seeing for Wuhan, Jim, why the economic shutdown? It looks like President Trump is already starting to push back. He was saying very clearly the solution cannot be more damaging than the problem to begin with. He's talking about reopening the country on Easter. There seems to be a desire from President Trump to kind of get on with it after these 15 days to stop the spread. Are we looking at a narrative here that is pushing us toward adult mandates? And from a legal standpoint, what is that going to mean for our nation? Well, yeah, yes. But again, it's just a response to the uncertainty. I mean, the, the TB death rate is built into the background, the baseline. The, here, the flu death rate is built into the baseline. All we get is a vaccine week in early November every year to get your flu vaccine, which 60 million people do and everybody else ignores. So it, but it doesn't lead to social isolation, distancing, economic shutdown, a third of the stock market vanishing. It doesn't lead to this crisis. In H1N1 in 2009, which everybody's pretty much forgotten, we had a thousand deaths before Obama ever declared a national emergency and there was no social distancing shutdown panic. And so now here we've got about 500 deaths, uh, but, but with the uncertainty, there could be 5,000 by the end of the end of next week. So part of the solution going forward from here is the development of antivirals uh, like HCQ and, and uh, Rendisivir and eventually a, a vaccine to see what the eventual health response is. But I think you're right. Trump is getting very cranky and wants things to be back open and sort of return to baseline. I do think there will eventually be a mandate and it will come through the 2017 CDC issued an obscure final rule on the control of communicable diseases. And they are very careful to say, well, we have no vaccine mandates in here, but they do have federal quarantine and isolation orders. So it'll be a federal quarantine and isolation order conditioned on you showing evidence of immunity. Either your tattoo that you had a antibody test and are immune because you had the Wuhan flu or a vaccine. So they'll get to the they'll get to an adult mandate one way or the other through the front door or the back door, because we part of the background meme in society is to eliminate all risk. And you have to backstop that against what I believe is an absolute fundamental right. And this is true in the health freedom movement. You have an absolute fundamental right protected by it at the moment that the UNESCO uh, Convention on Bioethics, that you have a right to rely exclusively on your own immune system for the protection of yourself and others, free of any burden or barrier presented by a government. And that's where I think the fundamental right is in a crisis, you know, fundamental rights tend to collapse in a crisis. Look at the Japanese that were interned during World War II with the blessing of the Supreme Court. And if that were tested in law, just as the measles mandates are being tested in New York, 
probably the liberty would wither in the face of the government saying crisis, crisis, crisis. And so although I do think there's a fundamental right to reliance on your own immune system, I think it's we're in a time of relatively weak judicial protection and certainly political protection for liberty. We learned, Jim, that President Trump has delayed and potentially postponed indefinitely the adoption of the Real ID program in October. Do you think that's any kind of foreshadowing that he may be willing to stand up more diligently for some of our American freedoms and our right to have health freedoms maintained and more, you know, privacy of information. The real ID for a lot of those who have been monitoring is kind of a precursor to this vaccine chip, which is something that the Gates Foundation has already been practicing and doing exercises and testing on in Argentina just this past fall. Do you think that's any indication that maybe this administration is going to be a little bit more diligent in protecting some of these freedoms? I think the real... The Real ID program probably is driven more by immigration concerns and citizenship and whether or not we're going to really be able to control our borders from a sovereignty point of view, which in part is driven by a disease concern. Right. If you can't protect your sovereignty, even in in Trump's order excluding Chinese at the end of January, even if you can't protect your sovereignty, you can't protect your your disease background from from, uh, deliberate or accidental intrusion. So that's probably more and more the driving force there. Uh, but uh, Trump, you know, he's in, instinct driven, not policy driven. You know, sometimes his instinct is to protect liberty and to favor freedom. And sometimes it's not. So uh, it's to, in a way, the joke around Washington is whoever got to talk to him last, you know, mm-hmm. is what he what he what he's going to protect. So we're very, very hopeful. What he must do is absolute transparency on the data on any any uh, Wuhan flu vaccine uh, safety data. Absolute transparency and a meaningful compensation program that works. If there's any kind of a burden or a mandate on, on having to take this vaccine in order to travel or go to school or whatever, there must be an effective uh, compensation program and not this, this lame uh, countermeasures program, which is, which is a nothing burger, but an effective vaccine program that generously compensates anybody who is, who is injured for the, the greater good if industry itself can't be held liable. Because there will be, even if industry does a very good job and if these new platforms makes a very safe vaccine, there are always some people who will be unavoidably injured. And both Congress and the Supreme Court have found that a product like a vaccine is unavoidably unsafe. It carries risks. Well, well, but but no what, what, what about if there's risk, there must be choice, Jim? That to me is the fundamental liberty of our nation. If we encroach we on that, right. we, we, we have a fundamental we, right to rely on our own immune system. That's the mm-hmm, fundamental right. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if in a if, crisis, those rights tend to evaporate. Well, that's the concern. And is the crisis legitimate enough when you look at the data coming out of Europe? That is the question. And Andy, this is another concern from an immune system standpoint, what Jim is saying about UNESCO, that we all have a fundamental right to rely on our own immune systems. Why aren't we hearing more from the quote unquote experts? There is this unusual trend It started, I think, with the British government, and it was uh, then the Dutch adopted it. And now I hear that the latest was the Israeli defense minister saying, hang on a minute, you know, let's be practical about this. Um, Surely the best way of dealing with this is to to protect the elderly from the younger people, because the elderly are at greater risk Mm -hmm. of 
serious adverse outcomes from the infection and for everybody else to get the disease and develop natural herd immunity to it. So that was a fascinating, I mean, the, the Israelis are very, very pragmatic people and they will have looked at this and said, look, this virus has already been around for a while. It's spread through the population. We're not gonna contain it in the way that we would have hoped to have done had we acted earlier. So let's isolate and protect those who are at greatest risk and let's the rest of everybody else get natural herd immunity and that will ultimately protect everybody uh, against the infection because it will not be able to circulate in the population and so that's very very interesting and there is an endorsement of the use of one's natural immunity to create a much broader i think longer lasting very likely to be longer lasting uh, protection against this virus and potentially other coronaviruses as well, particularly from the cellular immune response perspective. So um, that would appear to me to be an endorsement of Jim, what Jim is talking about, and that is the right to let natural immunity deal with this issue. Um, so, and, and we have we have we have good natural experiments going on with Israel and uh, Denmark and, and the Netherlands are adopting that policy. So we will have uh, actual data. Uh, to see whether that's that's a sensible way to go. The only data we have really, uh, uh, the kind of Lori was talking about, is that cruise ship that had uh, 700 passengers, and they tested them all, and uh, only seven died. Um, and so we we know that the more and they were of the very old cruising population. So we know the death rate is somewhere between the seasonal flu rate, which is 0.1 or 0.025 in the U.S. and and maybe half a percent. Uh, but because of the because the death rate is apparently confined to the very elderly, this creates an opportunity to re rely on natural herd immunity as a solution, particularly if the HCQ tests prove an effective treatment, as well as possibly prophylaxis. And we don't we won't get to the vaccine part in this in this particular uh, bite. But are we are we rushing to these more aggressive type treatments? when we're not even considering, nor do we hear from these experts, things like vitamin C dosing, um, utilizing even immune globulin therapy. If we do have enough exposure, you know, utilizing the antibodies from those who have survived could be an extremely beneficial uh, treatment. Stem cell therapy. I mean, it seems like there are some less risky, more holistic regenerative therapies that we aren't considering. Do you think it's because the pharmaceutical companies do have an opportunity here for a windfall? And as we've seen in the headlines, some of the politicians as well who have cashed in on some of this through the stock market as you know, far back as January. Uh, well, they were the, the four senators that you're talking about sold their stock just broadly based on the market. They weren't profiting as far as I know from buying Moderna's stock. That's the company in Cambridge that has the RNA vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, so they were just arguably using inside information to sell before the crash. And if that turns out to be true, they should be criminally prosecuted, as should anybody else. Um, but uh, uh, the meme, the vaccine meme got kind of baked in as a solution. And these, these other approaches you've mentioned, the holistic approaches, the antiviral uh, approach, the treatment approach, uh, and then especially the herd immunity, natural immunity approach, go against that, you know, because they're free, basically. So no, no one's going to profit from all that. 
That's so why I'm that wondering, was, is, that, is that the motive? I mean, it feels that they're willing to push these potential treatments that do have risks on the public without even creating any talking points even around things like vitamin C IVs. It seems like if we truly do care about our elderly, then we we would be looking at healthy food, clean water. We'd be looking at vitamin C IVs. We would be looking at ways to bolster their immune system, which is a direct consistency with what you're saying UNESCO describes as the right of every human, rather than putting the public well, gonna, at, at no, risk of, of a they, rush the, to market vaccine. The vaccine, when they get around to it, the vaccine most likely won't work very well in the elderly. They don't have as much of an immune response to vaccines anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and the natural immunity, that, that'll be really, we have to let the Danish experiment play its way out. Another 60, 70% may be enough to stop the virus from circulating. SARS doesn't circulate. So mm-hmm. we're not, we don't, there's no, we laugh at a SARS vaccine mandate. You know, smallpox isn't circulating. Uh, Ebola isn't circulating. So there's no risk of a mandate for those. So the, the jury is still out. If the virus isn't circulating, either due to herd immunity or it, it, it dies out because of lack of susceptibles, then there will be no vaccine mandate. Interesting. So is it possible, Andy, that once there is a coronavirus vaccine, this will be leveraged as an opportunity to push additional vaccines for adults? It's certainly possible. I mean, the, 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 the issue is this, and I was listening to one of the world's experts on this issue just the other day, and he was saying, look, you know, that what the generation of this new vaccine is is, has done is given us a, a way of developing a platform for the rapid development of such vaccines going forward. It's highly likely that by the time a vaccine for this current coronavirus comes to market, it'll be long gone. Long mm-hmm. gone. It'll be irrelevant. Well, isn't so, it likely it's already mutated, Andy? Well, it, it's, it, it is highly likely that it will be totally ineffective against whatever coronaviruses may be around in 18 months' time. So I don't think it's going to be relevant. What will be relevant is going forward, they've got a platform to do it should another one come along, which is highly likely. I'm not concerned necessarily about the vaccine. I wouldn't have it, personally, I wouldn't go near it. Um, and uh, But I do, I am concerned that this is going to be a stepwise progression towards the, the um, really the enactment of Healthy People 2020 through the back door. And we're going to see cradle to grave, not even cradle to grave, pregnancy to grave vaccination mandates. And that's going to be a very, very interesting challenge. Right. Separate and apart from the Wuhan flu. Sorry, Jim, go ahead. Uh, Completely separate and apart from the Wuhan flu, the next blue team president, there will be a federal vaccine mandate. They'll, they'll, they'll do it through taking away the state non-medical exemptions and then using the CDC uh, communicable disease program to impose things like travel bans and passport bans. So we are very, very, very close. It's up to the Electoral College now. The next time there's a Democratic president, there will be an adult vaccine mandate as well as a childhood vaccine mandate. It's that close. And for those of us fighting for health freedom and maintaining the right for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to live in a world where that's not possible, don't you think we can stop it? Well, you've got to decide who you're going to vote for. And I think Jim's just summed it up without adopting a 
particular political position. If you vote Democrat, you're going to get a federal mandate for cradle to grave vaccination. Good luck with that one. Well, that's been a little bit of the concern because we know that Anthony Fauci is very connected to the Clintons, which are the quintessential leaders of the blue team, even though they are or sort of, you know, behind the scenes at this point and in very connected with the Clinton Foundation. And yet President Trump, who's on the red team, seems to have surrounded himself with folks that are affiliated with the blue team. So what then? I, I, under under as, as long as Trump is president, as long as there's any Republican president, there will be no federal mandate. So we have to root for the red team. We do. <laughs> it comes, it's, about, that, it's that it's that simple. If you want health freedom, you know, vote, you know, vote for a red team president and uh, make sure the Senate and the House stay as red as possible. And what about you, Jim? Would you go near a coronavirus vaccine? Nope. Well, there we have uh, it. There we have even, it. Even 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 if the safety look. The safety profile will never be, there will always be some risk to it. And I'm just general believer in, in the power of my immune system with God's help and the help of science and supplements to do a good job. And I'll leave it at that. I, I, I don't want to be forced or compelled to do anything, particularly when you're, when you're altering the immune system. It is so complex. There are those that even cite the human immune system as evidence, as proof that there must be a God. I don't, I don't know that I necessarily go that far, but the human immune system is so complex. We dare not alter it with the blundering man solutions at our own peril. Well, it certainly is the most elegant machine ever created. To that, I say here, here. So God willing, we will continue to have health freedom in America and watch this space for more information about 1986, the act, which will be a brilliant opportunity for Americans to learn more about this topic. PayPal.me slash crystal clear film fndn short for foundation crystal clear fndn if you'd like to contribute thank you both so much pleasure thank you very much thank you Laura. you've been listening to the andy wakefield weekly podcast a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before this is the seventh chakra films production in collaboration with brick city creative Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act, and soon on Sphere.